life is merely a matter of perspective, then how should we perceive it? Is it enough to be happy with the ones we've created so far on our journey? Or is it time for a challenge? What if the things you believe are critically important don't actually matter as much as you think? And what if the old way can make way for a much more powerful perspective altogether? You want a challenge, Tom? You got one. Welcome, listeners, to Subject Matter. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Subject Matter. I'm Ben Bradbury, as always, joined by my gracious co-host, Tom Worcester. Tom, I've got to ask you, what's been the theme of your work this week? Ben, great to see you. Always really enjoy our time together. Uh, The theme of this week is actually trust. So I've been perfectionist for as long as I can remember. And according to (laughs) some of my past partners, I have inordinately high standards for judging my own work which makes it extremely hard to delegate to others. For the first time, I really trust my team, and I trust they have what it takes to do what it takes. So I'm comfortable letting them take the reins. What's the theme of your week been, Ben? That's awesome, Tom. I'm happy to hear that's going well for you. My theme for this week is foresight. I've dialed in on my weekly planning system with two key changes, scheduling themed days. So for example, one day I'd work on subject matter, another day I'd work on project 33 and so on. And only planning to do tasks that I actually have time for rather than writing a never ending to-do list as I have tended to do before. So this foresight means that every single day this week, I've got a big rock of work out of the way. And those themed days have actually given me a noticeable boost in focus as well, all from having a little bit of foresight. And going back to your theme, Tom, at the very least, I trust that you've got a soapbox monologue or two in store this episode, if this is where you're starting. (laughs) Nice, Ben. Well, thinking that monologues are a bad thing is really just a matter of perspective. And that's exactly what we're debating today on Subject Matter listeners. Your perspective, and specifically what lenses you can choose to look through life with. So a quote that I love to frame perspective comes from David Niven, who was arguably one of the most well-traveled men on the big screen in his day, having played Phileas Fogg in Around the World in 80 Days. David Niven said this, Much in life is simply a matter of perspective. It's not inherently good or bad, a success or failure. It's how we choose to look at things that makes the difference. Our aim here today is not to convince you to drop your lifestyle in pursuit of a new single thing, such as knowledge, for example, but instead it's merely to open your eyes to the possibility that what you hold to be important is not absolute. And if you choose to, you can discover meaning by wielding other perspectives that matter. Now, we begin today by going way back, nearly 3,000 years ago, to the largest empire the world had ever seen. Their borders stretched from modern-day Egypt, enveloping the east coast of the Mediterranean, and going all the way to the mountains of Iran, this was the Assyrian Empire. Their mighty dynasty were horribly effective. They ruled from their citadel in their capital of Nineveh, and they played lavish sports for their rulers like hunting lions, and they brought terrible wrath upon any faction that should oppose them. But despite their long, bloody, and turbulent reign, one leader has been remembered by history above all others as the architect of Assyrian greatness. And that man was Ashurbanipal. 
Let's make something clear. In olden times, if you were powerful and didn't like someone, it usually didn't matter why they rubbed you up the wrong way, there's a pretty good chance that you'd just have them killed. And this bloody theme of backstabbing and treachery was no exception in the Assyrian Empire. But somehow, Ashurbanipal, the self-proclaimed king of the world, ruled his empire for nearly 40 years, from 669 BC until his death somewhere around 631 BC. This extraordinarily long lifespan was arguably one of his greatest achievements as king, but this was only made possible through the perspective that he held. Now, Ashurbanipal didn't hold the traditional perspective of an ancient king that you might be thinking of right now in your head, who wants to be the strongest with a sword or most adept with their arrows. In fact, Ashurbanipal never even set foot on the front line of his battles, despite commanding many. Instead, he commanded from his citadel in Nineveh, spreading his web of intelligence. You see, Ashurbanipal's perspective was one ultimately governed by knowledge. As a young boy, he shadowed his father, Esarhaddon, at court as his spy master. And this gave him access to the Assyrian Empire's vast supply of agents who informed on the goings-on of their vassals and of their enemies. When he finally came to rule the Assyrians as king, Ashurbanipal developed this network even further. The world's oldest form of writing, which is cuneiform, was as vital to Ashurbanipal's successors as the siege engines he would use to overthrow a revolt from his jealous brother, the king of Babylon, Shamashum Ukin. His spies and servants formed a huge system of information, transporting his letters to the farthest reaches of the empire. Imagine being able to search information on your greatest enemy on the internet when they haven't even invented the telephone. This was literally the edge Ashurbanipal had over his enemies, so it's no surprise that this guy went on to rule for 40 years. It's clear that Ashurbanipal lived his life through a perspective of knowledge, but this is perhaps best shown through his collection of what is supposed to be the largest library ever assembled by man. Thousands of clay tablets outlining past history, astrology, epic stories, records of omens, and much, much more, all featured in his mighty library. With his incredible collection of books and empire of intelligence, Ashurbanipal was not a romantic conqueror looking for glory on the battlefield. He was the cold and calculated CEO of an intelligence bureau. And if knowledge is power, then outlasting your enemies, commanding a kingdom, and amassing the greatest library the world has ever seen is a powerful perspective indeed. Okay, Ben, but not all of us are rulers with access to the greatest library in the world. Looking at you, Alexander the Great. And I know what you're going to say. We all have access to a book or two. And we all have access to the internet. But before we get into that argument, let's start here. What's the point of reading, of gathering knowledge? It's to give us greater context on the world we live in and let us make smarter choices moving forwards. What if you knew nothing about something you cared about? Let's say you want to travel the world. You can do one of two things. You can either go by the Fromer's Guide to wherever you want to go to, say Barcelona, and learn about it, read about the sites, read about Gaudi, read about the architecture of the city, but at some point, 
You have to do the second thing, which is go out and do it. And that's why my perspective of gaining knowledge through experience itself works so well. So here's the problem with your example. Ashurbanipal was able to lean so heavily on his knowledge because of the vast infrastructure his empire already had in place. He could quickly send orders and receive requests from the furthest reaches of the empire. In other words, his knowledge was being applied for him. He was the man swinging the sword, but he was not the blacksmith who made it. But I'm assuming all of us listening don't have servants to turn our knowledge into action. Now, it's true that Ashurbanipal got context from his empire, but we don't need to govern empires to gain context. Our starting point? Making better choices regarding the things that truly matter in our own lives. And that's why looking at life from a perspective of experience is so brutally effective. It has application already baked into it. The country you visit, that new skill you take up, you're applying knowledge in the very moment you're discovering something new. You may have the best knowledge in the world, Ben, but you need to apply it to make something that matters. How many nameless historians knew the world front and back, but yet we've never heard of their accomplishments? That's why a perspective of experience invites execution alongside it. Remember, Ben, vision without execution is hallucination. But you need knowledge to know what experience to pick in the first place, Tom. Aren't you applying learned perspective right now, Ben, by saying that? The process starts with discovery of a new thing, and it's followed by action, capitalizing on it. And I know what you're going to say again, that experience can be gained from books. Look, I'm not going to disagree with that, right? That, that, that There's a whole industry of scholastic textbooks that would basically be your best serving point. But in the words of George R.R. R. Martin, a reader lives a thousand lives before he dies. The man who never reads lives only one. But his definition of what life is, at least George R.R. R. Martin's, is different than mine. The man who critiques a thousand paintings is a world apart from the man who he himself creates a masterpiece. I think that's a fair point that application has to come alongside knowledge to actually derive meaning. So if applying or trying is what matters above all else, then let's talk about what we apply ourselves to then, Tom. Let's go all the way to the end of our lives. Imagine that we are at the end of our time on earth and you're on trial for what you've accomplished during your time here. Your name is called forward and the person in charge asks you, so where did you apply yourself? Did you apply yourself in areas of good, of altruism, either helping humanity, the environment, or the planet itself? Or did you apply yourself frivolously, chasing one of the seven deadly sins? Your answer serves as your life's litmus test. From that alone, you can determine the true worth your life has had. So when you talk about a perspective of application, Tom, let's not mess around. We need to look at life from a perspective of the highest application possible, a perspective of impact. If you think that volunteering your time at a homeless shelter is the only way to do this, then I'm afraid you're not thinking big enough. Let's talk about the guys who are thinking big. Let's talk about effective altruism, a movement dedicated to helping people do the most possible good with their time, money, and resources. 
Effective altruism, or EA for short, has an extraordinary rule baked into it that they've discovered, and that is the 100x rule. Quite simply, a smart donation to a worthy charity can be worth 100 times its value in the developing world. It goes 100 times further. So a $10 donation would have the same punching power as $1,000 in a Western country. That fact alone is crazy. We talk about 10x in companies all the time, and yet we so easily ignore the ability to 100x a life. So you might be wondering, how can you quantify that perspective of searching for impact? The effective altruists have got you covered, though. The metric that they use is a quality-adjusted life year, or quali for short. This simply represents a year of perfect health as impacted by your efforts. And whether you're donating to fund malaria nets, deworming initiatives, or any other one of the serious problems the third world faces, you can give someone a full quali for less than $70. That means a donation of just $6 a month to the right charity for a year gives someone else a full year of perfect health. Now, when I stop to think about that principle for a second, it actually kind of mind boggles me. So the question then becomes, where will you have your impact? Having that vision, knowing what you want to move towards, then lets you work backwards. Tom wants to impact music festivals and build a better, safer experience with Lunchbox. I want to help ambitious entrepreneurs become the best versions of themselves, but only if they're willing to change everything. And if you don't have that vision yet, if you don't have that North Star, then realize that your capital, your resources can go 100 times further in the developing world, and that can start today. The effective altruists show us that we can have so much impact in this very moment if we simply choose to shift our perspective to one of impact. That's all very noble, Ben. And you're right. I do agree that we all need to be hardwired for impact above all else. But let's be clear for a second. Perspective needs to be ultimately practical. And while we can choose to have a small impact now, say, dedicating those hours at the soup kitchen, if we want to achieve those lofty goals or impact a million lives, we need a runway to get there. In short, we need assets that are working for us to provide the scale we need to succeed. You know what's better than donating $100 a month? And this isn't a trick question, Ben. It's donating $10,000 a month. Your perspective of impact whether it makes you feel good or not, is unlocked through a perspective of value first or with a bare minimum credibility to wield value. This is why charities fundraise. So let's talk about executing that strategy. If your money is sitting flatly in a bank, it is eroding. Every single day, inflation creeps up little by little, which means that your wealth is worth less and less. You don't get rich by trading your time for money. That has a relatively low ceiling. So whether you're an accountant billing $150 an hour or a consultant at $250 or a lawyer at $500, it's still capped by the amount of hours you can actually put into it. You get rich by having a significant piece of equity in something that truly takes off. So if the path is action, what's next? How can you build towards that result then? Now we start to get long-term. Start investing. Diversify your assets, looking to passive income real estate, 
a new monetizable skill, index funds, derivatives, growth markets. You've got the opportunity to look to place money in places where it's going to work for you rather than that beer, that car, that shirt, so on and so forth. You have the opportunity to create multiple streams of income that can basically protect you from any variance in the marketplace. Or, my personal favorite, start something yourself. As we said, the best way to get ahead is to create a large piece of equity in something meaningful. Create equity in something that matters. I like it, but Tom, you're overlooking your greatest asset of all there, and that's the people you spend your time with. Those deals that you're searching for, that product you want to invest in, those can all come from the right phone call from the right person at the right time. And that comes from investing not necessarily your money, but investing in a deep network of relationships that give you access to that potential. That's having a perspective focused on the people you spend your time with, a perspective of relationships. So let's talk about some strategies to build those key relationships then. And this comes from Chris Frulich, First Round Capital's board partner, who is hyper-connected and an expert at building bridges between people he didn't already know. So here's Chris's advice on building a perspective of relationships. If you're trying to connect to busy people, make your requests short, simple, and to the point. Make it easy for the other person to say yes or no. For example, if you're asking for an intro, write a self-contained forwardable email. Then they can agree to your request at the click of a button, expending no energy and all the upside for you. His second tip is to do your homework before meeting someone. If you use Gmail, you can download the Clearbit extension, which surfaces additional information on anyone it can find in your address book. Now, with the abundance of knowledge that's out there today, whether you use Clearbook, Wikipedia, Google, whatever it's got to be, there is really no excuse not to be informed on your relationships. Finally, Make your own system for keeping in touch. Don't rely on your memory. You can use a CRM like HubSpot or Contactually to get automated reminders for when to reach out to someone. Follow up, follow through, and find those people that will push your perspective forward. These relationships don't have to be limited to people that you reach out to either, or even people that are alive. We're coming full circle now, back to the library of Assyria, back to Ashurbanipal's great collection of knowledge, because he knew, and we know, that books can play that very same role. In my life, I have a handful of books that I regularly come back to, which keeps the author's ideas fresh in my mind. And I think of them like a council of mentors that I have regularly surrounding me with their ideas. It doesn't matter that I don't know them or that I can't email them. Their thinking is just the turn of a page away. And here's a way of putting that into perspective. No pun intended. If you started reading one book a week from age 21 or 52 books a year, if there were no hiccups, you would have read just over 3,000 books by the time you reached 80. You can guess that there's a lot more than 3,000 books out there. In fact, according to Google in 2010, there's been nearly 130 million books published. Doesn't that make books seem that much more precious? Doesn't that make great knowledge seem that much more elusive? And that's why I have a challenge for everyone listening here today, myself included, and you too, Tom. 
I want you to experience at least 1,000 people's ideas in your lifetime. Immerse yourself in their knowledge. Read 1,000 books and tell me how it goes. I want to hear from you guys on the books that you read. I promise you, you won't be disappointed. In the words of Peter Dinklage, otherwise known as Tyrion Lannister, reading is the whetstone that sharpens the mind. Now, these books are the combined perspectives of knowledge and people's experience, as Tom touched on earlier. They've applied what they've learned, and that's what makes them so powerful. Books themselves, I argue, are the manifestation of applied learning. You don't have to go and do that experience. And the books that stick over time, well, they become your network. And after all, your network is your net worth. Ben, it's the concept of a young writer. They may have the ability to write early on, but in actuality, and perhaps ironically, it's their experience, their suffering, and their growth of perspective that gives them the ability to write something worth reading in the first place. A green writer with talent is someone who knows the name of every can of piano with no idea how to yet play it. And for me, Tom, it doesn't matter right now if I don't know what the song will look like in the end, but only that I'm making that music and writing every single day. Yeah, but there's also a difference between playing alone in your garage versus playing in the orchestra. I challenge you to find any orchestra, any company, any novel, any business that didn't start at some point in that garage. Right. But what am I paying for the ticket? But let's take a step back for a second from all this and from the orchestra now that you've become a musician. Because what we're really talking about here is freedom. Manifesting a perspective of value allows us to choose how we live our life. And that choice unlocks an even richer perspective down the road. It's self-fulfilling, provided it doesn't corrupt you. Looking at life from a perspective of the people we surround ourselves with leaves us free to become whoever we truly want, as their ideas will reflect ours. After all, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And even focusing on impact lets us be safe in the knowledge that at the end of it all, we've lived a good life. Freedom is a catalyst for all of these things. It's the beautiful bedrock that underpins our existence. Without it, we're shackled to the dreams of others. With it, we are powerful beyond measure. Because we're free to approach life's perspective on our own terms, free to live and learn with others, and free to decide for ourselves which subjects truly matter. Well, Tom, I'd say this subject is definitely up there for me. Fair enough. So where does your perspective stand, listener? Do you think that your perspective prioritizes anything specifically, whether it's the creation of value, the prioritization of experiences, the acquisition of knowledge, or something else entirely? And does that perspective need to be challenged? Can it improve? Are you trying to be in the orchestra, but actually just making music in your garage? What lies on the other side of that challenge may be the ultimate goal, and that is greater fulfillment. But as always, listener, where you choose to draw the line or perhaps shift the lines of your perspective is up to you. 
So thank you all for tuning in and listening to another episode of Subject Matter. We hope you have enjoyed this one. If you have liked it and you haven't already, please give us a subscription and a rating over on iTunes or Spotify and also get in touch. We'd love to know what you liked from the episode, what you didn't enjoy. You can reach me on Instagram at Ben Bradbury. You can reach Tom at Real Tommy Bahama and we would love to talk to you. So without further ado, thank you very much for listening and we will see you next week for episode 13 of Subject Matter matter.